0: Section 28 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Fourth Decade, Chapter 1, From the Battle of Poitiers to the Death of King John, Part 2. A period of miserable anarchy followed. The Dauphin and the King of Navarre both took bands of the companies into their pay, and let them loose upon each other and upon the country, which lay for the most part deserted and untilled, and disfigured with the blackened ruins of homesteads, castles, and churches. Writing a short time after these events, the poet Petrarch thus describes the state of things which he witnessed in France. I could not believe that this was the same kingdom which I had once seen so rich and flourishing. Nothing presented itself to the eyes but a fearful solitude." and extreme poverty, land uncultivated, houses in ruins. But desperate as was the condition of the country, and low as France had fallen, the Dauphin and the States wisely and with one voice rejected a treaty of peace signed by King John in 1359. For in this he had agreed to cede to England nearly the whole of the western seaboard of France with its ports and islands, and an inland sweep of provinces which would have equaled if not surpassed in extent the famous territorial dower brought to Henry II by Eleanor of Aquitaine. Upon the indignant refusal of the government to confirm this treaty, King Edward III made immediate preparations for an invasion of France on a scale exceeding that of all his former expeditions. A hundred thousand men sailed from Sandwich, between daybreak and sunrise, on October 28, 1359, and before nightfall entered the harbor of Calais. They had to carry a great part of their supplies with them, for France was known to be almost a desert, no tillage having been attempted for three years. Eight thousand cars, each drawn by four horses, conveyed their stores, mills and ovens for making bread portable forges and leather-fishing coracles for the supply of the army with fish on fast days, thirty mounted falconers accompanied the march, thirty couple of greyhounds, thirty of strong lurchers for the greater game. The enumeration of these items almost describes by anticipation the character of this expedition. The English king marched along at his ease, hunting and hawking. The Dauphin shut himself up in Paris leaving the other cities to defend themselves as best they might. But Edward, averse to fighting, passed by the fortified towns and left them unmolested, as the black prince had done in his last campaign, and marched straight upon Reims in order to be crowned king of France in the royal city. Reims was too strong to be taken by assault, so he sat down before it to a winter siege his officers and troops occupying the abbeys and villages in the neighborhood. But the season was one of the worst on record. Before Christmas, the provisions which had come from Eno and the Cambracy began to fall short, and as the Dauphin showed no signs of being tempted out of Paris, Edward raised the siege of Reims in January 1360 and marched upon the capital itself. He took up his quarters at Châtillon, and Sir Walter Manny skirmished up to the walls of Paris. The French regent adhered to his policy of inaction, only burning the suburbs to prevent their affording protection to the invaders. He forbade his soldiers to pass the barriers, and rejected all Edward's overtures for peace, though urged to accept them by his own counsellors and the English king determined to withdraw into Brittany to recruit his army, which had suffered much by the winter campaign, intending to return to the siege of Paris in the autumn. He was already on his way when, at the instance of Pope Innocent VI, the most powerful, prudent, and possibly disinterested of the Avignonese pontiffs, the Dauphin at last gave way and consented to sue for peace. The ambassadors from the French court overtook King Edward at Chartres. His retreat had been hasty and calamitous, and he had left his line of march strewn with the corpses of famished soldiers and six thousand horses dead of starvation. Lengthened discussions took place which would in all probability, like so many previous negotiations, have led to no conclusion. Had it not been for the occurrence of a thunderstorm— so sudden, terrific, and destructive, that the superstitious feeling of the time attributed it to a direct interposition of divine power to put a stop to the sufferings of the people. It did apparently awaken the English king to a sense of the horrors caused by his ambition. A peace, one of the most important in medieval history, was signed at Bretigny near Chartres on May 8, 1360. By this, King Edward agreed to renounce formally and forever, at a certain time and place, all claim to the throne of France, and to the ancient possessions of the Plantagenets north of the Loire and its tributaries, Anjou, Maine, Turenne, and Normandy, on condition of a similar renunciation on the part of the French king of all right, title, overlordship, or suzerainty over the rest of the inheritance of Queen Eleanor from the Loire to the Pyrenees, a large portion of which had been wrested from England by Philip Augustus in the reign of King John. Both kings were to give up their claims to the homage of Flanders and Brittany, and Montfort and Charles of Blois, the competitors for the duchy, were to fight out their quarrel, assisted or not, by England or France, without prejudice to the treaty. There were other complications arising out of previous engagements on each side, but the Pope conveniently stepped in and absolved both the high contracting parties from any oaths or obligations which were contrary to the Articles of Peace. King John was to be ransomed for three million crowns of gold, six hundred thousand crowns were to be paid before he passed out of the gates of Calais, and four hundred thousand more in each subsequent year. Two months later the captive king was escorted to Calais by the Black Prince and the Duke of Lancaster, and there the treaty was solemnly ratified, both kings kneeling before the altar, taking into their hands the consecrated host, and swearing to the faithful observance of their engagement on the body of Christ. Such was the condition of France that this humiliating treaty was welcomed by the people, but in the then-exhausted state of the national finances and the depreciation of the coinage, there seemed little or no probability of the first installment of the ransom being paid. At this juncture, however, a demand was made for the hand of King John's youngest daughter, Isabel, by the ambitious head of the great and wealthy house of the Visconti, who, in the Pope's absence, united in themselves the civil and spiritual supremacy in the north of Italy and subsequently purchased the title of Dukes of Milan from Wenceslaus, King of the Romans. He offered upon the marriage of that princess to his son and heir, John Galeazzo, to pay the 600,000 crowns demanded by England as the first installment of the ransom of King John, and this undignified and mercenary contract being agreed to, with some reluctance by the French, the marriage took place and the money was paid. Hostages were given for the remainder of the ransom, the Duke of Orléans, the Dukes of Paris and Anjou, second and third sons of the king, together with others of the royal family and forty citizens of the principal towns in France. The ransomed king was everywhere received greatly and nobly, and when he arrived at Paris, beautiful gifts and rich presents were bestowed upon him, and he was waited upon and feasted by all the chief prelates and barons of the kingdom. But though the ceded provinces were, with many a heart-burning and threat of rebellion, handed over to the nominal sovereignty of England, the renunciations under the treaty were never made, and this unfortunate omission furnished both Charles V of France and Henry V of England with a formal justification for reviving a war which brought a succession of disasters to both kingdoms. The events which took place in France between this date and the fresh outbreak of war in 1369 may be briefly dismissed. Reviving prosperity was checked by the fact that the country had been deliberately portioned out among themselves by organized bands of freebooters. The Great War had attracted needy adventurers from all parts of Europe, and as they had nothing to live by but their swords, when the unwelcome peace was proclaimed, they kept possession of the fortresses which they occupied in defiance of the kings of England and France. A cloud of these brigands of mixed race spread themselves over the eastern provinces. They called themselves the Tarvenu, or latecomers, and set themselves diligently to work in order to make up for lost time. The great company pillaged the country round Avignon, and were advancing upon the city when the Duke of Bourbon, and de Cervol, the archpriest, were ordered from Paris to attack and disperse them. The duke, however, fell into a snare and was surrounded and slain with vast numbers of the flower of the royal troops in 1362. The brigands then marched to Avignon, but the pope bethought himself of the happy expedient of hiring them out to the Marquis of Montserrat, who was warring with the lords of Milan. It will be seen shortly how the Dauphin, Charles, managed to dispose of a large part of the remainder of these embarrassing auxiliaries. Meanwhile, the three lords of the fleur de Lis, the Dukes of Orléans, Berry and Anjou, growing weary of their exile in England, in 1363 besought King Edward to allow them under certain conditions to repair to Calais, and thence to make excursions as they pleased into the country on their word of honor to return before sunset on the fourth day. The Duke of Anjou took advantage of his liberty for four days to break his parole, and never went back to Calais. King Edward wrote a letter urging him to return, for that by his treachery he had tarnished the honor of himself and all his lineage. King John II Was so deeply affected by a breach of faith in which he thought his own honor involved that, in spite of the remonstrances of his nobles, he determined to yield himself back into captivity. But so far was the Dauphin from sharing his father's feelings that he shortly afterwards appointed his perjured brother his lieutenant general in Languedoc. King John returned with his other kinsmen to England, but returned only to die in 1364 three months after his landing at the Savoy Palace. He was, however, received in London, with all the respect due to a monarch who prized his honor above his freedom, and the king and the nation vied with each other in their endeavors to make his captivity pass lightly. Among the hospitalities which he received, one is mentioned which seems a remarkable evidence of the growing political and social importance of trade. The Lord Mayor of London, Sir Henry Picard, a wine merchant of Gascony, entertained the French king and his sons, together with the kings of England, Scotland, and Denmark, in his house in the vintry near St. Martin's Church, and kept his hall in the evening against all comers who were willing to play at dice or hazard, while his lady Margaret kept her chamber for the entertainment of the princesses and the ladies of the court. End of Section 28